Welcome, everyone. This is the Woman Who Rubs the Mountain podcast, a gathering place for conversations and stories of ecological embodiment. I am your host and guide, Kendra Ward. Well, we orient ourselves again and again with this single question. What happens when we rub on the body of the earth? How does the earth brush back against us? Here we seek an intimacy, a love affair with the land and beings where we live. So let us come together in creative, strange, disruptive ways of relating beyond the human-centric limitations of our current dreaming. It's my hope that by sharing experiences of embodied ecology, our reality shifts, our core truths sharpen, and space is made for a new, old, earth-honoring culture to reemerge. So let us all just take a moment to feel in right now, to connect with the land wherever you are, feeling into how this place silently or not so silently buoys you in your life. Let us acknowledge the larger geographies, the big sacred intelligences, the rivers, hills, trees, clouds, that we don't just live with, but live in. So just taking a moment with our hands on our hearts to bring this, the presence and vast resonances of these beings into our conversation into our stilling, our speaking, our listening. Hmm. Thank you. Well, I am so very excited and honored to be in conversation today with plant medicine goddess, Vanessa Shakur. Vanessa is an author, visual artist, herbalist, naturalist, former pro boxer, and environmental activist, truly a, a, a Renaissance woman. Her work is a dynamic blend of her vast personal experiences over the last two decades. She is the founder of Sacred Warrior, whose mission is to deepen relationships with ourselves and the environment and the co-steward of Mount Owen Forest Sanctuary in Western Massachusetts. And I'm excited to hear more about that in our conversation today. Her recent book, Awakening Artemis, shares her journey of healing through the lens of 24 medicinal plants and her newest book, Earthly Bodies, Embracing, Embracing Our Animal Nature, will be published by Penguin Life in 2024. So Vanessa, welcome. I'm so glad to be here with you today. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much. Well, let's just begin with Awakening Artemis. Mm -hmm. um, if, you know, just introducing the book a little to anyone who hasn't got their hands on it yet. And I'd love to just read the, the full title, Awakening Artemis, Deepening Intimacy with the Living Earth and Reclaiming Our Wild Nature. So tuning into, you know, what does Artemis mean to you as a woman, as a story, as an archetype? 
And what does it mean to awaken Artemis? Mm, that's a beautiful question. Well, I remember when I first learned about Artemis, I was in elementary school and sadly, there are often very few really strong female archetypes that we learn about growing up. And I was immediately just really struck by Artemis. I grew up in Western Massachusetts and had a really deep relationship with land from the time I was a child. Um, I was out in the woods all the time. I was an early activist, you know, having a deep relationship with land and then learning what our species often does to land just was absolutely heartbreaking to me. And so when I learned that I could, I had some sort of a voice, I started writing letters and being an activist on behalf of the earth. And so without realizing it, I, I kind of realized it in retrospect, Artemis even then served as sort of an archetype. You know, she is the Greek goddess of the hunt, of the moon, protector of wild nature and of animals. She's often seen with a bow and arrow and, you know, and like wolves or wild dogs flanking her sides. And she's a protector of earth. And when I was researching Artemis for the book, one of the things that really struck me was how the belief in Artemis actually protected land. So, you know, how we've lost a lot of our earth-based cosmologies and belief in these guardians, whether it's Artemis or in Scotland, you know, a sacred trout that guards the loch, you know, yeah. protects, literally protects land. So she in, sense, in a sense was and is a protector of land because people believed in her. So I found that really fascinating. She's, you know, an archetype of the wild woman, something that I, I identified with early on you know, as a martial artist, as an environmental activist. Um, Jean Shinoda Bolin, um, a wonderful writer and, and psychologist, writes about Art Artemis as being the archetype of the activist. So I, I really identified with her in so many ways. Um, I've also worked on behalf of the Wolf Conservation Center. So I just, I feel such a strong sense of protection and wanting to to work on behalf of these many misunderstood creatures that cannot speak for themselves or or um you know have been persecuted for for whatever reason and and you know I talk a lot about so-called weeds in my book and wolves and and so I just again I just I really relate to the archetype of Artemis um and then you know I'm sure we'll talk about this further in the conversation one of my favorite plants is named for Artemis Artemisia vulgaris mugwort so there's just so many reasons I chose that title um, has a lot of meaning to me. Um, and the last part of your question, what is what it means to awaken Artemis? To me, it really it means awakening that wild spirit within us, you know, that inner wild and feeling a sense of she was also a protector of women and the earth. So so awakening that sense of. You know, stewardship, I would say, in all of us for the land. Beautiful. Well, I'm curious when your love affair, I'm going to say, with wolves began, do you feel like it began when you were quite young as well? Oh, definitely. Absolutely. I mean, I grew up with dogs. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always, the dogs raised me and taught me how to walk. I literally, I used to, we had this huge Newfoundland named Daphne and I would grab onto her fur and like stumble up and she kind of pretty much taught me how to walk. And, um, I had, there's a story in my book in the chapter about Mullen, uh, the, the way, and I, I can get into the ways that weeds and, and plants sort of frame each memoir element of the book. But, um, you know, I write about the fact that she, one day I stumbled out of the house as a kid and Daphne like followed behind me and, and kept walking 
alongside me and kind of moving me away from the road, you know? Mm -hmm. So I had these sort of like, she was like a, you know, kind of like a Nana and Peter Pan. So I grew up with lots of big dogs. So I'm sure that has an an influence on, on the way I really related to wolves. Um, And then of course the persecution of wolves, you know, it's like, I live, I grew up in Western Massachusetts where wolves have been extinct since like the 1800s. And, you know, we see the impact on the ecosystem, you know, they're essential ecological stewards that have been so persecuted and misunderstood. Um, and it's just interesting to me, the sort of the, the wolf versus the domesticated dog, right? Dog is, you know, supposedly human's best friend, and yet we persecute their ancestor, their wild ancestor, you know? So, so that I just feel like there's so many aspects of wolves, you know, just in terms of their symbolism that I really relate to. And then also, you know, their, their little, their role in the ecosystem and just the fact that we, they should be, you know, left to live their lives, you know, whether they play an integral role in the ecosystem or not. So, um, so yeah, I've had it, I've had an affinity for wolves ever since I was a kid. Me too. Yeah. I really <laughs> resonate with that, you know, um, with their presence and, and just, yeah, they've been with me an important role for me as well for a very long time. So yeah, well, in Awakening Artemis, um, you, I feel like this relates to the, to the wolf conversation as well. You talk about, uh, feeling magnetized to beings that have been misunderstood or marginalized, um, you know, particularly in the context of so-and-so called weeds. So mm-hmm. to me, it feels like, um, you know, these wild plants don't just hold centuries of forgotten medicinal knowledge, but they're they're literally the edge walkers of mystery itself. So I just, I love how you wove your personal journey in with the stories of these ancient plants. I mean, there's just real I felt like uh, just the beauty of that weaving. And, oh. you know, I, I was wondering if you might tell us a story of mystery about one of these plants or, you know, perhaps something that might just stick with us the next time we greet one of these plant elders. Sure. You know, one of the things I, I absolutely love about so-called weeds is that they're everywhere. And it's, I find it just really odd that we we malign these plants because they're everywhere. They're abundant. You know, we, you know, it's like this, this idea that something is more precious when it's, when it's rare. Um, and I was living in Brooklyn at the time. I lived in New York city for many years and I, I overlooked these plants too, for, for a lot of the time I was in New York city, you know, um, I would crave the woods and wild nature and the forest and, you know, and yet here were all these plants, as you say, that have centuries of use in medicine. Um, but beyond that are playing a role in the ecosystem as well. And mugwort is one of those plants that is absolutely everywhere. And that's that plant is the first chapter um, of my book. And um, and as I said earlier, um, you know, the, the botanical name is Artemisia vulgaris, so named for Artemis. And uh, it's really fascinating because this plant um has many of the qualities that the Artemis sort of portrays in her myths so for example she's a midwife and this plant was often used to initiate labor or as an amenagogue for you know for men for when women aren't aren't flowing when, when menstruation is sort of stuck it helps to move stagnant energy um and is one of the really fascinating aspects of mugwort is it's what's called an anirogen so it's a plant that enhances dreaming 
which is absolutely fascinating. And this is a plant that is literally all over New York City, like growing through the cracks in the sidewalks. And, you know, here in Western Massachusetts, you'll see this like growing through cracks in the parking lot of like, you know, Whole Foods or like everywhere, like everywhere, you know? And so, and then the other thing I read about in the book that I found really interesting is mugwort, as you say, is like an edge walker is like grows on the edge between the wild and domesticated spaces. So it grows on the edge of the forest. And so even in New York City, you have forested areas in Central Park or in Prospect Park and mugwort always often grows on the edge. So the plant grows via rhizome. So they grow in these like vast, vast thickets. And so it's almost like creating this boundary between the wild and kind of more domesticated spaces, the areas, you know, where, you know, the, the urban wildlife might hide. So, um, so mugwort is absolutely fascinating. You know, it was used for visioning for uh, many people use for mugwort for meditation. And, um, I've had so many students who work with mugwort for lucid dreaming practice or to remember their dreams or to work through trauma in their dreams or to, to you know, work with dreams as a creative practice. And every single person, even the most skeptical, have reported that like, wow, you know, when I work with mugwort, my dreams are so much more vivid. I remember them more. And this is a plant that's everywhere, you know, so um, that we that many people overlook. Uh, so you know, the, this is also a plant that's a nervine, so it can calm the nerves. It's really, it's a bitter, so helpful, helpful for digestion. Um, this is just one of the many plants that surrounds us all over. So this plant grows in the cities and urban areas in temperate regions all over the world. All right, everyone, you gotta, you know, t- take a moment to maybe find out what mugwort looks like if it grows near you it might um and to be able to to see it everywhere yeah i really notice it uh on the edges of roads in particular um you know it almost provides like gateways you know Mm -hmm. but but it's it's one of these plants it's true that we just start to stop seeing it you know we we stop seeing it all around us uh, for those who are listening right now, you're, you're not going to be able to see, but right behind me is a mug, some dried mugwort oh, hanging. Oh, yes, okay. just right there. Speaking of of mugwort everywhere, well, I believe in the book you talk about using mugwort tincture and maybe also mugwort uh, under your pillow. What's your favorite way to work with mugwort in terms of dreaming? Um. That's a great question. I've tried all the different ways. <laughs> I uh, I think that the way I've used it most frequently for dreaming is a tincture, um, but I've also burned mugwort. And, and just as an aside, I mean, that's a really wonderful thing to do because, you know, many people, white sage is popular for burning, but that plant is, it's endangered. And, you know, and there's a lot of issues around burning white sage, which that's, you know, can be a tangential conversation, but there are plants that are abundant that we can use. Um, and, and mugwort is one that I used to dry and sometimes burn before dreaming. Um, but tincture, I would say is my favorite way to, to use the plant, just having a tincture by the bed and taking a few drops under my tongue is super easy. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great idea. Well, from your weeds, wolves, and wild women substack online writing, uh, one of your most recent inquiries has been about species that can't live without each other. 
And I really love this inquiry. It's been a curiosity of mine as well. You know, the the, the proboscis of a certain bat or bee or butterfly that perfectly matches that, you know, certain flower. And where I live, I make a special effort to plant purple prairie clover because of the endangered rusty patch bumblebee that just has this like really special love affair and affinity with these flowers. But it feels like there's also this vulnerability to these love affairs, you know, that the devotion at times can almost endanger the survival of either and this fragility that's there. So I'm just, I'm curious about what you're discovering in your inquiries. I I just love this this as well you know what I found when I was writing Awakening Artemis my favorite things to write about were relationships and love and and there's one chapter where I explore the relationship between chaga and the birch tree and of course chaga as we know it doesn't exist without the birch tree Um, the birch can survive without chaga but chaga doesn't really exist in that medicinal form without the birch so I was really fascinated by this and and the that sort of tension in their relationship and how some people say that, you know, that the chaga is parasitic. Some people say it's a symbiotic relationship. And, and of course we deal with this in our interpersonal relationships and in love and losing ourselves, being consumed by someone else, you know, like people worry about the birch being consumed by the chaga. And um, so that's what really started the exploration for me. I mean, of course, you know, I'm, I'm always thinking about pollinators and, you know, you know, like everyone is, well, I wouldn't say everyone, but many people are familiar with milkweed and monarch and, and, you know, that's the, the reason for monarch decline. And, and just that vulnerability that we feel that vul- I feel that vulnerability when I'm in love with someone, you know, you feel like you can't live without that person mm-hmm. and, and the, that, that courage to really allow yourself to let go and fall um, is that feeling of vulnerability that I that I I bring to sort of this inquiry of like you know this bee has evolved with this wildflower you know this bat has the these these plants and these species evolved together it's just uh, it's so beautiful and so poetic and I and I hope also that the inquiry will inspire people to to look at the beauty of nature and the fragility and some of these wildflowers that we overlook, you know, that we might consider to be weeds. Um, so yeah, I just, I'm just really inspired by, by the inquiry and, and all the love affairs in nature that we, we don't always see. Hmm. Well, and maybe continuing to expand out um, just the, just love in general, you know, yeah. maybe continuing to expand out, um, you know, from that, that human centric lens of like, is there really love, you know, between a bee and a flower, um, you know, and, and just continuing to, um, do what human beings have been doing since the beginning of time, which is just allowing there to be that level of sacred creativity and intimacy. Exactly. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. I have this, it's not exactly the same, as for example, like the monarch and the milk and milkweed, but there's this certain area of the forest that I live with and, and all of the pine and the maple trees grow around each other. And it's just this one section. And it's really fascinating because 
there's not really another place in the forest, even though I have, there are many white pine and maple trees that I live in family with. And, um, but these, this one area, it's like, they all were growing around each other in this certain pattern. Um, so just, it's just interesting, you know, what is happening in the land in that place in particular to make those sorts of really skin to skin types of relationships happening. That's really beautiful. You know, that's what I hope the inquiry will, will inspire in others is just looking at nature in these different ways, you know, looking at these species that like in your, you know, in the land that, that surrounds you, you know, like who is growing near each other, what relationships are look really fragile, who is missing, you know, Mm -hmm. in terms of the plant life or insect life. So, yeah, I just, I just hope that will, it will, inspired people to look more closely and, and build intimacy with land in that respect too. Yeah. Well, I thought that we might tune into some of the essential ways that, um, you know, intimacy relates to listening, you know, Mm -hmm. listening well enough in each moment to what's needed. Uh, you know, sometimes interacting is needed, pruning and planting and pollinating, and sometimes just staying still, um, composting or just, you know, pausing deeply. So it it feels like, you know, one of the longstanding myths that are carried about the first peoples in the United States, Turtle Island, is this idea, this myth of pristine wilderness, that before the settler colonialists colonialists came, um, that there were just these swaths of wilderness and untouched land. And of course, we know that this isn't true, that the first peoples had small cities and gardens and paths and had these intimate relationships with, uh, you know, the bushes and trees and used fire to tend the land. And so, you know, just continuing to tune into this assumption or myth that the land wants to wild itself and it doesn't want any humans, um, you know, instead, like continuing to tune into our place as humans and this, um, you know, the, the healing that's available in a purposeful pause and listening and then interacting as needed. Yeah, I think about this a lot. My partner and I have been thinking about this quite a bit, um, you know, in relation to Mount Owen, the land that we're stewarding right now. And yeah, you know, you often hear, um, you know, really well-meaning people talking about making no impact on land. And and while I think it's an important, it's a nice sentiment, we can actually make a positive impact, as you're saying, you know, I mean, sometimes it the land is actually depleted, needs restoration, and needs a little bit of help um, to, to get back to a really healthy place. And, um, and then, yeah, of course, like you said, you know, like, there, there are many, I was reading an article somewhat recently about in California, how, you know, the settlers came like, wow, you know, all these wild fruit trees. And it's like, of course, you know, that was not wild. You know, people were interacting with the land for centuries before the colonizers came. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, I think we need to remember that, you know, obviously, you know, you know, permaculture is a really big thing, but of, of course the first nations had early permaculture with the three sisters, you know, Um, so yeah, I just feel like it's really disrespectful to think that way. And also, you know, it, 
it doesn't foster a relationship with land if we feel like, okay, if, say for example, the, the real um, polarization that happens where it's like people are clustered in the cities and then there's wilderness outside. You know, I just feel like we, we need to learn how to be stewards of the land. Um, you know, it creates this like fractured landscape, I think, you know, where it's like, you know, there there's some people who have these like, you know, think having land means having a lawn, which is really detrimental to the landscape. So I think that we need, I mean, I don't know, but I think about this a lot in terms of, you know, education, you know, educating people to to have a positive impact on land instead of no impact on land, um, I think is really, really important. And, um, and honoring, you know, the first people of this land too, in the ways that they, you know, in learning, um, how to be a good steward, I think is really vital, especially these days now in, you know, the situation that we're in. <laughs> yeah. And it feels like the, you know, because each place has its own energies and kind of personality and um, elements that maybe are predominant, you know, it is that quality of listening that mm -hmm. feels essential in tuning into what is is needed uh you know some places the tenderest and lightest of touch might be needed and then in other places you know really allowing um there to be you know breath and space and air moving through and like a a a, a you know, cutting back that's needed, like a deeper pruning, um, you know, so just that I have this experience in where I live right now, where, you know, speaking of um, just things being out of balance, you know, that this, the spaces here were just entirely full of brambles, you know, there's no breath in the land at all, you know, and so it um, just the beauty that's come forth in, in, a, in attending you know, the, the cutting back or the, um, yeah, just the, the, the deeper listening and not being afraid to like place your hands on the land and, and have an impact. Cause I definitely, you know, when I was younger had ideas around like, let the forest do what it wants. It doesn't want us there. It doesn't want us, to, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a, it's a big learning for sure. It is. Yeah. It's really interesting. And I've done a lot of work in, in Scotland and um, I have a lot of ancestry there and talking to one of the ecologists um, that I really admire. And she just talks about this tension between nostalgia of the landscape and, and the way that the landscape is evolving. So not only do we, you know, need to listen in relation to, okay, what, what the native species are, who's struggling, but also how the land is evolving, you know, mm -hmm. maybe, yeah. you know, there is just, we need to, we need to adapt with the way that land is shifting. Um, and not necessarily cling to nostalgia and, you know, I mean, the war on invasive species is a real issue, you know, the way that that um, people deal with invasive species in terms of poisoning landscapes. And yeah. so it, there's, there's a lot of tension around that issue, too. So there's so much to learn, always to learn. And, and, and I do agree. I think it, we have to listen to the land, look at the landscape, what's happening in that particular area and mm -hmm. and how to respond to it. Well, I'd love to hear more about the place where you're stewarding Mount Owen Forest Sanctuary. Um, I have a number of questions about it, but I, I you know, first off want to hear about, you know, the intimacy part 
uh, especially from an embodied sense, you know, how you're finding intimacy here and how this place is finding intimacy with you? Well, I grew up in Western Massachusetts. Um, so this is not far from the area where I grew up. And I and I continue, I kept circling back to this area, you know, living in New York City for many years. And I was going out to wild places and, and facilitating retreats and workshops and nature connection. But I kept circling back here. And um, and my partner and I, we were he, um, exploring, you know, we knew we both wanted to be in nature and um, and be stewards of land. And I, you know, I prefer, I, I'm uncomfortable with the idea of owning land. And so we prefer to use the word steward. And I, I've always wanted to so-called own as much land in order for, to protect the land. Um, and, and that's also, there's also tension around that because of course, you know, I, I feel like we need to be good stewards in terms of restoration and providing access and all these things. So we're still working on all of that. We started, we started work, uh, hiking the land last May um, when we were subletting around here and I was, I was, uh, you know, we were exploring whether we wanted to be here. He's Puerto Rican ancestry. So, or in Puerto Rico. And so, um, and we started hiking this land and just slowly fa started falling in love with it. It seemed entirely out of reach when we started hiking the land. Um, but we kept getting pulled back, pulled back, pulled back. And so we, we were hiking constantly, got permission to, to hike the land. And this, this land was, is, about 270 acres was used for logging, but hadn't been touched in many, many years. Um, and I don't know, it's just this like magnetic pull. We kept getting pulled back. And so we, we hiked the land and eventually put an offer um, last fall. And, and now we're, we're the stewards. So we're figuring it out. I mean, we, um, United Plant Sabers has agreed to be a fiscal sponsor. And so one of the things is having a botanical, botanical sanctuary there, um, but we've been really spending a lot of time just hiking land, getting to know the land first and, and listening, you know, looking at, you know, the different seasons, um, what trees are healthy, what trees are not healthy, what areas need some attention, what species might be missing that would normally be there. So we're really just taking our time. Um, I have an herbal apprenticeship starting there this spring, um, which is really exciting. And so I've started some plants and some seeds. And so, yeah, we're just moving slowly. Um, we want to live there in a, as regenerative a way as possible. He's researching ways to, to build that are compostable. I mean, to the point of not even using any nails. So it's just like, it's going to be a yeah, it's just, it's a slow moving process. Um, but um it's exciting. Yeah. We're learning a lot. It's so exciting. There's, <laughs> you know, so much possibility and oh, yeah. 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 Um, and just that, that little bit of honeymoon period of just discovery and, um, you know, having it be fresh, but also it's true that just like any relationship, you know, it's in that familiarity and in that returning, um, mm -hmm. where the true, you know, deeper connection, uh, just needs its own time to unfold. Like you said, through every season, you know, really, um, watching the changes. Yeah. Yeah. In the land. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. So by the time I have the apprenticeship, we've been hiking the land and getting to know the land for about a year. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, you know, that's nothing in the scope of the, the, but, but, you know, it's, it's at least we've gone through every season with yeah. the land and um and yeah 
learning a lot. And, you know, eventually we want to have programs to help foster relationship between humans and nature and provide refuge for, for, for plants, animal, other non-human animals and, and wildlife. So, so yeah, it's, just, it's a, it's a slow moving process and, and um, we're, we're, you know, we're built, developing partnerships with other sanctuaries, which, which I'll talk more about soon as once that all gels. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, we're excited. And and so talking about this word sanctuary, um, you know, and 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 I looked up the etymology for it. It means consecrated place, a sacred object, an inner sanctum, or a private room. So you know, just thinking about um, yeah, the the use of that word and how it might relate to your broader visioning for this for this mm-hmm. space. Well, you know, I, I think it has many levels, you know, sanctuary, I want it to be sanctuary for the wildlife that already lives there. You know, we're, we're moving into land that is already inhabited by many creatures. You know, we've seen bear tracks and fox and bobcat and deer and, you know, all sorts of creatures. So it's already their sanctuary. We want to keep it that way. Um, and same thing with the plants, you know, and, um, and then providing sanctuary for plants that are endangered, you know, so I work, I work with United Plant Savers, we've already planted some ginseng and golden seal, and those are very, um, endangered and also vulnerable plants. So we want to foster their growth, um, and have sanctuary where they're not going to be harvested. Um, so it's a space for learning, for propagation, um, so we're we're part of the botanical sanctuary network, and so that means a sanctuary for endangered species, plant species, um, knowing that they're not going to be harvested for medicine, that they're just going to be able to have to have their own sanctuary there, and sanctuary for humans, you know, especially we're we're, we're both connected with a lot of people in urban areas. We want to provide sanctuary and peace for for people who need to get out of that frenetic pace and just drop in and be in nature. Um, and, um, and, you know, very few people at a time, we really want it to be a very peaceful, very safe space as well, which is really important to both of us. You know, it's really rare. Um, you know, I feel this hiking around, you know, alone and to feel safe in nature, sadly, you know, sometimes you always feel that this sense of having to watch your back. And, and when we go out in nature, we want to be able to fully let down our guard so we want to be really mindful of, um, you know, who participates and who who comes, who shares the space on our land so that everyone feels safe and supported. And so we really want to offer that sanctuary to people as well. So, um, so yeah, so I, you know, want it to be really, a really safe space for, for reconnection to self and to, to the land for humans. Mm, beautiful. I love the the sense of letting those plants be there with absolutely no intention of them needing to help out us humans in any way. Exactly. <laughs> like about their lives. Yeah. yeah. Like, like a really good practice for us. Cause we're so deeply trained in the, what can you do for me paradigm? So yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. That's lovely and and a good good practice for us too, I think, as humans to just sort of like let be, you know, to yeah, just exactly. be, yeah, to to not have any intention of extracting whatsoever, but to just, you know, let that plant be. So mm-hmm. beautiful. Well, yeah. in in his book, Entangled Life, um, author, and I would say sort of fungi 
magician Merlin Sheldrake, he says, quote, in difficult times, organisms find new symbiotic relationships in order to expand their reach. Crisis is the crucible of new relationships, end quote. And so I'm curious, um, you know, not over romanticizing the difficulties that we're experiencing on the planet, but I thought we might feel into the seemingly impossible, regenerative, nutritive aspects of crisis. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, if I look at the pandemic or we look at the pandemic and in how many people were inspired to reconnect with land. You know, I was I was in the Scottish Highlands when when I was in lockdown and I had more people reach out to me about herbalism, what to plant, you know, um the idea of victory gardens like, you know, became popular again. And so so that crisis really propelled people like, "Oh my goodness, I can't necessarily rely on going to the grocery store anymore. And then I, and I, I saw people questioning more and more where things came from. How do they get there? You know, what, what is the supply chain, you know? And so why, why buy lettuce that's been shipped from California when you can grow it yourself? And so I think a lot of people, I see more people growing their own food and medicine now. Um, maybe it's just a little bubble that I'm in, but I do see that happening more. Um, so I, I just think that this, this crisis that we're in now, I'm hoping, I'm hopeful that it's it's inspiring people to look more closely um, at where, you know, where their food and medicine comes from um, and the impact on the earth. And I definitely see, I have so many friends who've moved out of the city and, and are living closer to the land now as well. Um, and people who are still in the city finding ways to work with land, you know, joining community gardens, things like that. So I do, I do see this, this um, desire to reconnect with nature um, more and more. Um, and I, I see more and more people kind of interested in the work I've been doing for many years. Um, so I'm hopeful that that that's an aspect of, of, crisis, you know, just being more mindful of, of what we consume, um, where it comes from and, and the impact it has. Yes, for sure. That, that the tension, we only, you know, um, take action from that tension, like the tension is necessary exactly. to then move forth. So yeah. Well, I'd love to, you know, kind of gather the threads by hearing a little bit more about what's on the horizon. Um, anything else that you wanted our listeners to know about your work? Sure. Well, I'm, as you mentioned earlier, I'm working on a new book, which is really exciting. I, I'm coming in and out of sort of like the cave of that. Um, and I'll talk and talk a little bit about it, but I want a lot of it to be a surprise, but, but similar to the way that I framed Awakening Artemis with each chapter being devoted to a medicinal plant and using that as sort of the framework for the personal essay and memoir elements. I'm using animals in a similar way with the next book. Um, animals that I have deep relationship with in one way or another. And the the framework is, um, is essentially the way an animal is, an injured animal is reintroduced to the wild. So, um, so, so coming out of an enclosure is the way that I'm framing the book. Um, and I'll, I'll leave it there, but it's been really exciting to write. And 
And um, so I'm excited to to share more of that with with listeners and with people as as I can reveal more of the book. And um, as you mentioned, the Weeds, Wolves and Wild Women Substack, I'm spending a lot more time there now, which has been really nourishing and great, you know, because I I'm the kind of person just I just have to write. I'm compelled to write all the time. Mm. <laughs> so it's been nice to share more there. Um, and I'm offering some writing workshops. I have a spring rewilding through writing workshop, which is I, I we're in the middle of the winter session now. And it's been so incredible to hold space for for writers. Um, some are working on books. Some are just using writing as like deep personal inquiry. So um, so that's been really wonderful to hold space for that. And finally, as I mentioned, I um, have an herbal apprenticeship and in-person one coming up, which is really wonderful at Mount Owen. So um, I can't wait to just get back outdoors and be working with the plants again. So, um, so yeah, there's some big things I have going on and, and I'm going through a major pivot actually, you know, with, with sacred warrior, I'm kind of transitioning into another business, um, which, which is going to be a a collaboration of various sanctuaries. So um, that's in the process of, of winding down, but, but growing into something else. So, so soon that website will really be just celebrating a decade of, of amazing work. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm starting a new, a new organization called Solidago Sanctuary. Um, and Solidago is, is the botanical name of goldenrod and the entomology is to make whole. Mm-hmm. Um, I really love it's a plant that has been used to heal wounds um, so Mount Owen essentially is going to be part of Soledago Sanctuary. So it's a bigger picture kind of organization that, that I'm working on right now. I would imagine there's, there's quite a bit of goldenrod that grows. Yeah. Of goldenrod. Mm-hmm. The whole front field is goldenrod. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's just, it's, I just absolutely love that plant. And, and it's another, you know, prolific plant that's everywhere. There's about 200 species. It's so important for pollinators. It's such a gorgeous plant. And I just love the poetry of the plant too, how, you know, the goldenrod appears as summer wanes. I just feel like it's like this light in times of darkness and yeah, there's so much beautiful, you know, so much beautiful metaphor there. And, um, and I've really, I'm really interested in holding space for creative process, which is why I'm just, I'm enjoying these, these writing workshops so much. I've been doing, I've done some writing retreats over the years. And so, so really Solidago is kind of exploring the intersection of art and ecology um, and, and providing a lot of space for artists and writers. So that's what I'm working on right now. Mm, there's so many layers there. You know, I I think about goldenrod as um, just in its presence, its uprightness. And it's, I think it's one of those plants that, um, you know, speaking of perception, you know, it, it, when you really look, you see all of its tiny suns, like how it's vibrating out in the world is so powerful, but you wouldn't, you know, unless you get to that micro level, like you just would totally not see that aspect of it. So it's, um, Mm -hmm. there's so, so many layers there. Do you, are you planning on illustrating earthly bodies? Are you, is, is that going to be? I am. I'm also, I am also inviting some other illustrators because yes, I did illustrate Awakening Artemis, which is, which was really great, which is an, which was a way of, of sitting with the plants in a different way. I hadn't drawn from life in a really long time. Um, but yes, I do plan on illustrating the majority of it, but I'm also going to invite some illustrators to, to participate as well, which I'm excited about. And that's great. Yeah. 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 I love, I love that. I love how it's, um, 
Well, I just love that country, that aspect of contribution that that makes it really special, I think. So yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. Well, speaking of awakening Artemis, I was hoping maybe we could just come to a a close by you reading a, a short passage for us. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. So the, the passage, I've cho- passage I've chosen is from the Linden chapter. And um, Linden is a tree that is often used for feelings of just being raw, um, often used to tend to grief. And this is at the very end of the chapter. Death exposes our interdependence and forces us to adjust to ways of being amid absence. Now, most of us are driven to protect land, not because of taboos, water guardians, or goddesses like Artemis, but because of conviction, science, love, connection, or because it is the right thing to do. But recalling these protectors and guardians may also be a beautiful way to honor sacredness in our world. We lose a part of ourselves with every wild space that is lost. Protecting the earth isn't something we do as a favor for a world beyond us. We are directly served and nourished when we think of Artemis and other guardians of wild. The reality of impermanence can help us cherish the now before it slips away. Life asks us to awaken to the beauty of the moment, but also not to forget who and what we have lost. This can be a challenging balance to strike, but we must notice our wild interwoven family and come to know who is here so we can work to protect the vulnerable vulnerable before they become nothing but memories. I imagine that endangered or threatened species like red wolves would not want us to despair too long about their dwindling numbers, but instead to remember and feel the beauty of our interconnection. If we are moved enough by the magic and reality of our coexistence, we might be compelled into action before it's too late, becoming part of their survival. Mm, Letting that resonate out a moment here. Thank you. Welcome. Mm. Well, thank you so much. I'm just honoring the way that you are living into your gifts as this matchmaker between plants and humans and mm-hmm. for just spreading all of these love affairs around. It's very beautiful. <laughs> That's my goal. Yeah, exactly. So much gratitude for everyone listening and for spending this time with us. If it felt of benefit, please do consider leaving a review or subscribing to the podcast ongoingly from whatever your preferred listening source is. That way you can be notified whenever a new episode is released. And if this path of earth honoring relationship building calls to you, but you're feeling like reconnection is confusing or awkward, check out my earth heart, earth psyche online class, which is an intimate journey of knowing ourselves at home with the living world. You can learn more about that at KendraWard.com. May we discover new ways while also remembering old ways of relating and being in kinship as we continue to bring an open-armed adoration and devotion for this wild earth.
And I look forward to being with you on the next episode.